You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. In the early, heady days of the Internet, the go-go 90s, the ability to share your data with the whole world was seen as something of a panacea. Imagine us all talking to each other, all at once. Imagine how all these intermediaries could be removed, how ideas could be democratized. Imagine how much better the world would be. Well, that's not exactly what happened. Today, despite many of those early goals being realized, the intermediaries who control our data have grown to a scale previously unimaginable. Everything about us is collected and analyzed and monetized in ways that are completely hidden from us, well beyond our control. And what's worse, we are told this is the way it has to be. That privacy is dead. That all that data does not belong to us. It belongs to them. Something has to change. Few question the need to share data in the modern world. Data fuels our digital lives, helping us make decisions, build relationships, and stay organized. To get these jobs done, we willingly share our personal data with various service providers who give us search engines, social networks, and e-commerce. But somewhere in the bargain, those providers encroached far beyond what the typical user was meant to understand. Our personal information, what makes us us, wasn't just given, it was taken, in a way that makes it very hard to get back. In more recent years, many have woken up to this asymmetry, raising their voices, asking for a way to share their data that is more fair. Some have been at this fight to shift control longer than others, like today's guest. Liz Brandt is the co-founder and CEO of Control Shift and has spent her career focusing on the opportunities created when people, businesses, and technology meet. Over the past 20 years, Liz has had a singular focus, the sustainable use of personal data. Anticipating that the use of personal data would become critical, Liz started the consulting firm Control Shift over 13 years ago. Over that time, she has worked extensively with blue chip enterprises, governments, and think tanks to support the development of the personal data economy around the world. Control Shift's mission is to help businesses thrive in the emerging personal information economy. Liz, 
Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Al. It's great to be here. What a fantastic introduction. I couldn't have done better myself. Let's jump right in. There is little question that the internet provides us with an enormous amount of value. Given that we are getting so much in return, why should we care about privacy? ControlShift is not specifically focused on privacy, but privacy is a very important part of how our personal information economy evolves. It's evolving across the world in slightly different ways that reflects the different cultures, the different economies. In Western worlds, it's not just about whether or not I'm seen buying shoes. Our credit scores, our ability to buy, our ability to rent, our social status, our ability to get a job. So the data that we are generating all reflects back into those things in our lives. But it's not just that. Privacy supports our social structures. It supports our ability to have relationships. We all interweave our profiles, our personas for different relationships. So privacy has a cohering nature in our social structures. And it also gives us the ability to make decisions. Our data is increasingly helping organizations make decisions about us, be that government, be that businesses that are trying to sell us something, people that are trying to provide us with services or health services. That data is helping them make decisions about what financial tools we get, what products we're offered, what health services we might be offered. It's that freedom of choice. But there's also our freedom of speech. And if we, for instance, were to be critical of something, that's a really important part of our society today. If we felt like that criticism was going to be blasted out everywhere, that means that people become less able to criticise, less able to debate, less able to be involved, which actually starts to disintegrate our ability to speak freely. So overall, privacy isn't just about whether or not I've bought a new pair of shoes. It's really about how we structure our societies. It's a foundational block. And in that, how you are able to gain some oversight of that, let's say transparency, and also how you're able to control that. And those two things combined together enable us to trust in how our data is being used in our digital worlds. The way it feels today is more like everything is being grabbed. Do you think there is enough control options in place now that let me say I I don't want you to know X and Y? 100% there isn't. There are not enough tools for individuals to make that control, but also you are absolutely right that businesses are doing a data land grab and that's been going on for quite a long time. But what you'll see when you join the dots in a lot of the regulation that's being built around the world is that it's becoming less and less attractive to have huge amounts of data to the point where it's almost becoming a toxic waste. We have so many times breaches of the data and from that just fines, but also think of the brand reputation issues that creates. So it's becoming less and less advantageous to have huge amounts of data. But then you still have to have the data 
to enable you to gain the value from the data. So this is where the trust in the information sharing relationship between the individual and the organization really starts to play a part, giving every individual more control over that using tools in their hands actually enables the individual to share the data with the organization whilst reducing their need to hold huge amounts of the data. So let's unpack that a little bit. You're not saying, let's shut it all down. The internet today runs on data and this data that we ostensibly share with service providers. You're not suggesting that we stop doing that, correct? Correct. Data is what economists would call a non-rivalrous asset, where the consumption of a good or an asset such as data by one person does not reduce the amount of value available to others. So with data, multiple people can hold it and use it, and it still holds value for the next person who uses it, which is like a magic money tree for businesses. But where the real magic happens is in the quality of what is shared. Is it verified? Is it clean? Is it of a standard that's usable? And is it timely? If I'm receiving an advert for a holiday in Italy based on the data from two weeks ago, when in real life, I've just come back from a holiday in Italy. I'm sure we all recognize those misplaced adverts and have a chuckle. But then think again. Because those misplaced adverts are costing companies money. And in the end, that's actually included in the price of the product. However, there is another model. If you have access to your data and the ability to share that with someone in a way that's standardised and within your control, that data can be of very high quality, can be very broad, all about you. So it might be that the bank wants to get access to your data, not just about your financial data, but maybe also around where you live or what you do for a living or what qualifications you have. It's less risk, increased trust and more transparency and collaboration with the user, which creates that foundation of trust with the brand. That's what you describe as the information sharing relationship. Is that right? That I'm looking for an exchange that is fair with these providers? Yes, exactly. And I came out of the customer relationship management market where I told every single business that I helped implement CRM that their data was their crown jewels. They should never share it with anybody. But actually, we've gone beyond that, beyond holding it and storing it. We've gone to a place where it's almost essential that we have a broader set of data that any organization can get a hold of to help provide the services the individuals need, but also that information sharing relationship is more evenly balanced in power. So away from the asymmetries that we currently see and into the ability for each stakeholder to gain access to the data. Let's say I don't like this value exchange. I don't like my information sharing relationship with those large providers out there. 
and I decide to not share anything, I'm safe, right? This becomes a non-issue. You're safe, but you can't necessarily run a very effective or efficient life. It's a bit like taking your money and putting it in a big box underneath your bed. You can't do much with it. The internet enables us to lead that life. If we close down all our data, it really doesn't work for us. This is the balance that all countries are trying to create to enable this new economic growth everybody sees, this balance between privacy and growth, not privacy instead of growth. So if you look at the EU, they've been driving at this for quite some time. We've had GDPR, which gives everybody the right to their data. We've got the Data Governance Act that gives people new tools such as data intermediaries. We've also now got EIDAS, which is enabling digital identities and digital wallets. And those are all tools that are enabling the consumer. So you're not saying don't share your data, i.e. privacy, and you're not saying share it all, i.e. growth. You're saying how do we strike a balance between those two? The balance is the right data, the right time, the right place. And that's been something that people have talked about for a long time. And getting there is quite a challenge. Debate about the failings of the modern internet often centers around a single charged word. Privacy. For us average internet users which, let's face it, is everyone, there has long been a feeling that we are being watched. That our online activities are not our own, but shared, whether we like it or not, and sometimes even used against us. More than just advertising fodder, this lack of privacy limits how we act and what we say. On the other hand, internet service providers and many of their users make the entirely valid argument that their services, which we use every day, are extremely valuable and largely free. It is through access to everyone's data that the modern internet exists at all. Isn't it worth sacrificing a little privacy for so much growth? As Liz says, this is not a choice between the two, but rather a quest to strike a balance. Privacy and growth fueling each other. That's why, way back in 2010, just as social networks and smartphones were coming into their own, she started Control-Shift so she could dedicate her career to solving this very problem. Let's talk about control shift. 13 years ago, that's a long time. Why don't you give us a brief history of the company? When we started the company, we didn't really have that understanding of what it would take to actually manifest the market. We started the business with a vision and a hypothesis that as we all got more data, it wouldn't just be more data, it'd be more personal data. 
more about us and more reflecting of us as individuals. And as such, we would need this new information sharing relationship to be formed between the organisations that use the data and indeed to enable the individual to use the data. We started off doing market analysis and we sold it to a couple of companies. We thought we were onto a winner, but then we realised nobody else understood that there might be an opportunity. This was 13 years ago. So we weren't able to really sell an awful lot of market analysis, but we did a lot of work with some big strategic organisations, which has been transformational. One of the early pieces of work when we started was with the World Economic Forum back in 2013. And that was on a report called Unlocking Personal Data, which enabled us to really take a view of the possible impact of data on our societies, our economies, and on our safety. Also, we work with Facebook looking at the future paradigm of personal data. And that really started to set up a global engagement with businesses around what does this future of personal data look like? How could that enable us all to flourish? And what types of standards and user experience patterns would we need? And what sort of responsibility would businesses need to take? We involved about 50 different businesses around the world. So the other piece of work that we did, which I think is really critical and we're very proud of, is for the UK government back in 2018. It was for the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. We looked at the economic opportunity for personal data sharing. And the top line number gets used all over the place. It's 27.8 billion for the UK alone. And interestingly, if you take other studies, they're of a similar ilk. So BCG came up with 30 billion. McKinsey's came up with 50. It's a multiples of 10 billions that can be added to economies. We looked at what that opportunity was and how that might break down across different sectors but also what were the gaps that we needed to fill to achieve that. And that, again, came back with some very clear indications of infrastructure, standards, legislation, liability models, but also these really important tools for the individual that help them to manage their data, share their data, and build knowledge of how their data is being used to create that trust. We entered 50 different organisations. We reviewed 200 different academic reports. And we really concluded that there was a market failure that needed to be overcome, which is where governments start to step in. We needed to unblock some of those challenges where if you didn't get the data, you couldn't build the value. If you didn't build the value, you couldn't get the data. So there's this kind of chicken and egg issue which creates this market failure. So governments are starting to address that with investments into things like digital identity and digital wallets. Those are tools and capabilities that the government are investing in that can actually overcome some of these market failures that we identified in that report. What has changed for you over the years when it comes to how you view this subject of personal data sharing between then when you founded Control Shift and now? What's definitely changed for me is an understanding of what needs to be done to actually achieve this personal data economy. What I think has changed for other people is maybe the understanding of those gaps, but also 
this new legislation that we have in place that gives people the rights, the new standards that are being put in place that enable us to share the data in a way that uh, makes it easy and valuable to use. And I think that there's another thing that's changing at the moment, which is this slow realization that actually this data can be used in a way that can create even more value than we have before. Really, when you think about it, the data that we're using at the moment primarily enables us to sell more baked beans. That's what I would call it. It's it's about consumerism. It's about persuading people to buy things. Some of it is used not so pleasantly to influence the way we think and what we do, and some of that can be very destructive. But we use it mostly commercially to get people to buy things. We can do far more things with that data than just sell more baked beans. And by the way, I think if that's the only thing that human beings can think of doing with personal data, then we don't deserve to inherit the earth. Some of the examples that we worked on is in the skills and workforce space where the ability for individuals to use their data to track forward to the job of their dreams by tracking the skills that they've got against the skills they need for a job totally transforms how they would go about actually getting a job and moving to a place that they really want to get to. Now, that's really important for the individual. It's also really important for our societies as we are transitioning our workplace out of the industrial area into this digital era and the skills are completely different. So helping people to actually build skills that enable them to get to this new economy and their new jobs is really critical. Singapore has done a great job of that. They've been running this pilot, which is called My Skills Future, and it enables people to do just that. They can go in, they can say, I want to be a flight engineer. It says, what skills have you got? Singapore, give them a skills passport. They then say, with those skills, you need to build up three new skills. Here's a credit, which government does in Singapore, to build those skills. Once you've done those courses, you put those skills in your skills passport. You can then apply to become a flight engineer. So that is just a critical component of how we transition our economies and our societies, our skills, our jobs into this new economy. You said earlier on, what's changed? And I said some of the infrastructure, but also what has changed is where value is being created in our economies. And in fact, in that, the erosion of the existing business models, increasingly commoditized, which is forcing businesses to look at these new value opportunities. Over the past 13 years, Liz has immersed herself in the world of personal data. Earlier than most, she realized that the rise of the internet meant that more data meant more personal data, and that more personal data meant the formation of a personal data economy. And Control Shift was born. Working with the likes of the World Economic Forum, Facebook, and the UK government, Liz has uncovered many common threads that apply to the sharing of personal data, regardless of context. 
including the need for personal tools to provide transparency and control over an individual's data while still allowing it to be shared. Today, having been at this a long time, she understands the gaps better. Handling the hairy paradox between privacy and growth has now become a daily routine. And now, more than ever, the time has come to address that paradox so that we may move beyond simple consumerism to a place where the personal information economy raises all boats. To do so, we're going to need two key ingredients, standardization and legislation. There's two concepts you've brought up over and over again through the course of this interview. Standardization and legislation. Let's go through each of those in turn. What is the role and importance of standardization when it comes to the personal data economy? Standardization is absolutely critical. And by the time we've finished it, hopefully we won't even see it. It'll be a moment in time that we'll move past. It's like our railways. If we didn't standardize the rail tracks, then we wouldn't be able to run railways across countries. It's like electricity. If we didn't standardize how we keep ourselves safe, we wouldn't be able to put electricity into our homes. We have to have these standards around the data format, standards around the actual way of accessing the data, around the application interfaces that give us access to that data. That makes the data easy to access and use. The market thrives when it's easy, safe, and valuable. And without one of those three axes, you can't make the market thrive. So without standards, it's not easy. You will get data from one place that will be exactly the same information, but in a completely different format. And you will never be able to use them. You will just spend all of your time cleaning that data and trying to make that data accessible. So a standard to just make things easy. The second concept was legislation. What is the role and importance of legislation when it comes to the personal data economy? Really, there's two things. One is legislation enables us to ensure that we understand what our liabilities are and also gives us a right to that data. So it protects and enables the individual and helps us stay safe. That's the primary role of legislation. Is it also to drive the standardization? Earlier, you mentioned the catch-22 that only governments can resolve. Well, yes, not necessarily the role of legislators and regulators, but definitely a role of government. As a convener, convener and maybe cajola of the market, bringing together organizations to get them to collaborate. So I sit on the core council of what is the UK's smart data program. And in that program, there's a huge amount of discussion about whether or not we should force businesses to come to the table with their data. Personally, I am in a place where I think businesses should come to the program because there's value to be had, because we have created the right environment so that they can access safe and easy data to create that new value. And I think if you force somebody to come to the table, 
it distorts how they come to the table and what they come to the table with. And I think that we saw that in open banking. When we look at open banking, it created a huge amount of opportunity. It's opened everybody's eyes to what the opportunity is in the market. It started to help individuals understand what the opportunities are and how their data can be used. But the structure has drawn the consent and the management of the data into the organizations. There's not empowering of the individual. The individual, yes, they offer consent, but that consent has to be done for each organization that they're working with. That's okay when there's just nine organizations, not so difficult. But when you start to get into, let's say, the on average 80 apps that you and I might use on a daily basis, that's not scalable. And that model was created by banks because they wanted to hold control. And I think they wanted to hold control because they didn't come to the table. If individual consents for organizations are not the right model, what would be a better model? It's quite difficult for people to get their head around because we're talking about something that doesn't exist today in everybody's life, but does exist as a capability. So there are a number of these capabilities in market today that enable you as an individual to manage your data or they manage it on your behalf and they manage the consents on your behalf. Those are what are being called now data intermediaries. They used to be called personal data stores, personal data lockers, data intermediaries. They might be called digital wallets. There's still quite some debate about whether digital wallet is a data intermediary or whether the data intermediary is something slightly different. Those data intermediaries act on your behalf. If you wanted to share a part of your data with, let's say, your bank or your insurance company or your automotive company, you can permission them access all the time. And so that data gets consented once by you to your automotive company, once by you to your bank. It's not 6,000 consents across all of the services that you're using. We started by talking about privacy. The implication, of course, being that you're protecting your privacy from someone like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, pick your poison. Sometimes those organizations are accused of being data monopolies. Is that the other thing that legislation and government is intended to prevent monopolists? Yes, you're right. It's about fair markets. And that is a really critical component. Again, governments are really picking up the heels on how to manage that. So for instance, here in the UK, there's a piece of legislation going through that will create the right to set up something called the Digital Markets Unit. And that's a regulator that will oversee and regulate the digital markets and will initially focus on those big tech companies. Those regulators will specifically focus on how to regulate these digital markets, which are quite challenging when you think regulation and and creating fair markets has really lent in the past on price, fair pricing, and how do we ensure fair pricing. When you have a free product, How on earth do you make sure that market is fair? And that's what we have in something like Google or Facebook. These are free products. So there's a different way that we need to regulate those markets. When you actually look at these markets, 
we have to have gone through this phase where we have, let's say, more monopolistic type of approach. Otherwise, the huge investment needed to get to this stage of value from our digital economies just would never have happened. We would not have been able to invest in the market if they weren't able to collate and manage all that data. They wouldn't have been able to create the value either because the technology and the tools weren't there. So we are where we are. These businesses have created enormous amounts of value and they have done that by building these huge silos of data that they then manage and manipulate to enable them to offer value. And we're now moving to a place where we might not have to do that to create this new value. That is going to be challenging for some of those big tech companies. So it might mean they have to change their business models. But governments don't necessarily move very fast. And some of these companies might be able to move faster. That brings to mind two risks. One, that over standardization and over-regulation will grind innovation to a halt, that we won't see the kind of innovation we've seen from big tech over the last decade because of all of these, what some might say are burdens. Do you think that's a risk? So it's definitely a risk. We have to have a different way of building these standards. How do we do this? How do we do this at pace? that enables that economic growth. When we start looking at the different use cases for the use of this data, you have a standard set of data that gets used over and over again, and they cut across all sectors. And you only have to go on to your Google profile and look at the data they store, or Facebook and look at the data they store, or even maybe one of your online retailers and look at the data they store. It's the same data. If we can work to standardize that, then I think we've got sectoral data standards that need to take root, if you want to call it that. But let's not forget, a lot of these sectors have already got data standards. There are some parts of that when they start to contextualize the data that may need to be standardized. But actually, what we've got is a common set that runs across and then standards that are already within sectors. So we can build on those and then from there, really catapult our economies forward. The second risk is that we swing the pendulum too far the other way and we monitor all of this data and gather all of this data and regulate all of this data to the extent that the government abuses it. They use it in ways that are unsavory and they use as an excuse that they are protecting us from private data monopolists. Is that a risk as well? It is a risk, and it's another really important part of the digital puzzle around why individual empowerment with their data is really critical so that they can actually opt out. There's a sort of conspiracy theory approach to things, which is, oh my God, these governments, they're going to get all this data and therefore we need to protect ourselves, blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is, for eons, governments have done this in one way, shape or form. They've used data to, to control the masses and in doing so, maybe end up in a place that's not necessarily something that's beneficial for everybody. So we do have to protect against that. 
in control shift, we believe is that the empowerment of the individual with their data enables them to protect not just themselves, but also society. This data is being used in some parts of the world to manage the societies. It is a really fine balance and one that we all need to have our eyes open to all the time. Because although we live in our countries, you, know, you in Canada, me in the UK, where we have benign governments, they don't always persist. And often they can switch from benign to authoritarian on the best of intentions. Exactly. And, th- and that might be in the face of mass migration, they might start to switch to more control. Or in the face of, let's say, climate collapse, they might switch to more control. So there are instances which might trigger many governments to move from being benign to being more controlling of their population. Funny that your examples might justify them becoming more controlling of their populations. Yes, exactly. And and if we get to that point before individuals have been empowered with their data, then I think we might be on a bit of a slippery slope because how can we then gain access and control of our data and make sure that's not controlling us as individuals? This is a very challenging scenario. But if we get the balance right, the multiple balancing acts, one between privacy and growth, another between regulation and market. What does that look like? That looks like a big spike in our economic growth. It looks like a life where we can make better, more informed decisions. It looks like a life where we can access services that help us manage our lives more effectively, help us manage our health more effectively. Imagine a world where our DNA enables us to find a treatment to a disease or an ailment which is tailored to us. And that ability to tailor and personalise our healthcare, for instance, can help us have a longer, healthier life, which in turn increases our economic capacity and makes us a more valuable economic asset. What we need to think about is how do we do that as a market to enable everybody to float on this rising tide. We can build better lives with this data and it should not be just in the hands of the individuals who can afford to pay for it. Notable in that you're describing a win win, a richer society and a better society. Quite. And a society that reflects in our digital world the values that we all have designed and fought for for generations. Liz, where can our guests find out more about you and Control Shift and the work you're doing to make that future a reality? please go to our website. It's controlshift.co.uk. You'll see there some of the services that we offer. One is education. We also provide strategic advisory services that help people build out their strategies, build out their new operating models, business models, and also underneath that, something very important, which is their data ethics. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much for inviting me. It's been really great talking to you.
as this episode was being made. The first anti-monopoly trial of the modern internet era was unfolding in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Department of Justice has taken Google to trial, claiming that it has abused its dominant position in search to block competition and harm consumers. The prosecution has argued that the outcome of this trial will determine the future of the Internet itself. Google, they argue, can no longer be the sole gatekeeper for how we find and share information. But when it comes to specifics, their case revolves around Google's various bargains to be the default search engine on too many devices. In response... Google argues that they are the gatekeepers because they have the better product. That when consumers are given a choice, they choose Google anyway. That their privileged position has been earned based on fair competition against the likes of Microsoft and Apple. Notably absent from the trial is any discussion around personal data rights. The prosecution is quite right that this debate will determine the future of the Internet. But if the only thing that changes is a reshuffling of the dominant service providers, then nothing will change at all. The personal information economy can be reduced to a tidy acronym. PI. This PI represents our collective digital future. It is what will drive the future of markets, the future of governments, the future of privacy, the future of growth. The question is not how to slice up the pie between the big techs, but how to slice up the pie between all of big tech and all of us. A fact the legislators in Washington would be wise to embrace. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode of Mr. Open Banking was made possible by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. To learn more, visit radium.com.